Father, we pray that as we come to your word, that you would enable us to do what we've sung about, to behold the holy God revealed in the scriptures. Lord, help us to remember that you are holy. Uh, You are, as the angels cried out, saying you are holy, holy, holy. Lord, help us to gain a better understanding of what that means. Help us to catch a glimpse of the heights of your holiness, Lord, that we might better understand the depths of our sin and that we might better love Christ for the great length that he went to save ones so wicked as we, Lord, and to marvel at the all-sufficiency of his sacrifice that, that his blood could make us white as snow and fit to dwell in the presence of the most holy God for all of eternity. Lord, help us to better understand, not just in a a head knowledge sort of way, but in a way that reaches down deep into our hearts and changes us from the inside out. Lord, we do pray that your Holy Spirit would help us uh, to know you better through your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to be, Lord willing, finishing... 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the passage that addresses the Lord's Supper. And again, because it's a lengthy passage, I'm not going to read it to start off. We'll just kind of work our way through it. So 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and we're looking at verses 17 through 34. There are churches that feel more like war zones than they do places of worship. Churches where people gather not to worship God, but to see that things are done their way. It's their church. They've been there for decades. It's their way or the highway. That's why they come. There are churches where it would be better if the people did not gather together at all, because when they do gather, only harm results. Christ is blasphemed and the church is torn apart. The church of Corinth had become such a church. Paul writes in this passage that we're looking at this morning, he writes in order to bring healing to this broken church. And as things stood at the time of Paul's writing, healing could not, be, or could not come rather because they had turned the very instrument that was meant to bring healing to the body of Christ, they had turned that thing into an instrument for exalting themselves. And I'm speaking of the Lord's Supper. That was the instrument. And Paul seeks to remedy this perversion within this body of Christ first by stating the problem that's going on in the gathering. Second, by reminding them of the purpose of the practice of the Lord's Supper and third, by prescribing how they should eat the Lord's Supper moving forward. And as we follow Paul's argument, my prayer is that we will come to a deeper understanding of what we're celebrating when we partake of this meal together, and that that deeper understanding will deeply impact how we relate to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. So first, we'll see the problem. And we see this in verses 17 through 22, the problem. Before I get to verses 17 to 22, look up at verse 2 of chapter 11. 
we saw then how Paul had praised these believers for their faithful observance of the various traditions that Paul had received from the Lord and passed down to this church. He praises them for that. However, when it came to the observance of the tradition of the Lord's Supper, Paul could not praise them. That's what he says in verse 17. He says, but in giving this instruction, that is what he's about to write, I do not praise you because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. They were attempting to practice the Lord's Supper, gathering together as a church body, but they were practicing it in such a way that they were bringing harm to the body of Christ rather than harmony. They had twisted the Lord's Supper to the point that it would have been better if they had not observed this tradition at all. Paul goes on in verse 18 to explain what he means. He says, For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it. Paul has been informed about what is taking place during their observance of the Lord's Supper on the Lord's Day. And as we move through this passage, we're going to see what these divisions consist of. And we'll see that the division that Paul is speaking about here is a division that is running through social and economic classes in the church. There are those who have, and there are those who don't have. And those who have seem to be looking down their noses at those who don't have. And we've already seen that schisms is a big problem in this church. We saw that back in chapter 1, verses 10 through 12, where everybody was saying, I'm of Paul, or I'm of Apollos, or I'm of Cephas, or I'm of Christ. Everybody is trying to get the upper hand over one another. They're attaching themselves to the coattails of their favorite teacher, and they're voicing their support for that teacher in order to elevate themselves. This is Corinthian culture, everybody trying to climb the social ladder. But this passage that we're looking at this morning shows us that these fault lines within the church are not only running between groups who are rallying behind their favorite teachers, but these fault lines are also running between the rich and the poor. So it's a very fractured church here. There's division all over the place. Verse 18, again, Paul says, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it, for, verse 19, there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. That seems like a strange thing for Paul to say. He's saying that to some extent, division within the church is something to be expected. As we saw last week, God is sovereign, and he's sovereign over how many things? All things, including division in the church. And according to Romans 8, verse 28, God causes what things to work together for our good? All things, including division in the church. What man intends for evil, God always intends for good, for the good of his people. God uses even division in the church to highlight 
who's actually following, following him and who is not. And that kind of highlighting was taking place in Corinth, and Paul is pointing out, you're not following the Lord. Verse 20, Therefore, when you meet together in the same place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. When Paul hears of the strife and the discord that is taking place during their gathering together to eat the Lord's Supper, he concludes one thing. You're not eating the Lord's Supper. Communion is to be just that, a communion, not only between the believer and his Lord, but between a believer and the other believers. And division is happening, not communion. So Paul says, you're not celebrating the Lord's Supper. Whatever you think you're doing, it's not celebrating the Lord's Supper. Then Paul goes on to explain what this division between them looks like. He says in verse 20 that, or excuse me, verse 21, that each one is taking his own supper. And it's unclear exactly what was transpiring here or what exactly Paul means by that. It seems that the Corinthian celebration of the Lord's Supper was different than how we practice it here today. Apparently, there was a fellowship meal that was partaken of alongside the Lord's Supper. A fellowship meal was integrated into the celebration of the Lord's Supper. And at this meal, some were getting far more than enough to the point of getting drunk, while others were getting far less than enough to the point of going hungry. And again, Paul doesn't explain how exactly this is happening, but what is clear is that the believers who were eating their fill were doing so with a total disregard for the other believers who were not getting enough. It appears that there was some kind of favoritism taking place where those in the higher social strata were getting all the food they wanted while those in the lower social class were left with not getting enough. And we get this indication that it's between rich and poor when we come to verse 22. Because look at what Paul asks in that verse. He says, addressing these ones who are eating their fill and leaving others to go hungry, he says, for do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? That's not like today. Not everybody had houses back then. Only those who were well-to-do had houses. The poor did not. He says, don't you have houses in which to eat and drink? He's asking why the richer members are treating the Lord's Supper as an opportunity to pig out right in front of the poorer members who are left with empty plates, and the richer members are making no effort to put some on the poorer members' plates. They're not acting like Christians. They're acting more like the rest of Corinth, like they're in some kind of social club where the high and mighty are welcome, but the lowly they're the riffraff, and we'd rather they not be here. It's just another indication of how Corinth has gotten too much into the church, how the, these believers are not walking by godly wisdom, they're walking by worldly wisdom. And we heard all about that in chapters 2 and 3 in this letter. These believers have not yet learned how to consistently live in the way of the cross. 
Instead of humbling themselves, they are humiliating their other brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul asks, do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this, I will not praise you. Back up for a second to verse 20. I want you to compare verse 20 with verse 21. In verse 20, Paul says that they are not eating whose supper? The Lord's Supper. Whereas in verse 21, Paul says that each of them is instead taking whose supper? His own. They're not eating the Lord's Supper, they're eating their own supper. In the Corinthian church, the Lord's Supper was no longer an occasion to worship Christ or to serve one another. It had just become one more occasion for the Corinthians to worship and serve themselves. They were eating their own supper, not the Lord's Supper. How do we apply this today to us? Because given how we celebrate the Lord's Supper here, there's not much chance for favoritism to take place. We're not having a big meal where some get a little and some get a lot. We're just observing strictly the essential elements of the Lord's Supper. So we're all going away hungry. Nobody's going away filled with what we're going to eat here today. We're here to remember Christ. We're not here to fill our bellies. So how can we apply what Paul is talking about here to us today? Well, think about this. They gathered to celebrate the Lord's Supper, but Paul says you're not really celebrating the Lord's Supper. You're celebrating yourselves. When we gather together as a group of believers, why have we come? What are we expecting to get out of this that we're doing right now? When we walk out these doors, do we leave feeling disappointed because we didn't get the warm and the fuzzies that we were hoping to get this Sunday? Am I frustrated because so-and-so didn't say hi to me today? This person didn't check up on me today. Am I sad because I didn't get an emotional buzz from the songs we sang this week? Am I angry because so-and-so said something that rubbed me the wrong way? We need to ask ourselves, why are we here? Because if we leave this gathering together, and the impression that we're leaving with is, I didn't get what I came here to get, then the reality is that though we were thinking we were here to worship God, the worship of God was not what was happening. The worship of self is what was happening. We did not serve others, we served self. And we got upset when self was not served to the degree that we wanted. So that's the problem in Corinth. And that's the problem in a lot of churches and we have to be careful that that does not remain a problem in our own lives. I've thought those thoughts myself. We all have. So that's the problem. In verses 23 to 26, we come to the practice. Paul proceeds to show these believers how it is that their celebration of the Lord's Supper was not a true celebration of the Lord's Supper. 
And to do that, he takes them back to square one in order to remind them of what the true tradition of the Lord's Supper really is. And by showing them what the Lord's Supper really is, he's going to expose just how far away they've drifted from the true spirit of the Lord's Supper. Verses 23 to 25, Paul rehearses the Lord's Supper with them. He says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was being betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. According to verse 23, when Jesus that night with his disciples was instituting the Lord's Supper, what was in the process of happening? He was being betrayed. Literally, he was being handed over. Now, who was handing Jesus over? Well, his close companion, Judas, the man that he had poured himself out into for three years, he was handing him over. But not only Judas, also Jesus' own people, the Jews, the ones who were supposed to welcome him with open arms as their Messiah, they were handing him over to the Romans to be executed. And God, his Father in heaven, was handing his son over. And what Judas and the Jews intended for evil, God his Father intended for good. Jesus was in the process of being handed over to be executed on a cross the very next day. Now, how would you have spent that night knowing that the following day you would face a brutal execution? Well, I would have spent it curled up in the fetal position in a corner of a room. And I would have lashed out at anyone who dared complain about his own problems to me knowing what I was going to face the next day. I would have been furious at the disciples who were only thinking of their own greatness and who could not trouble themselves to stay awake for one hour to help me get through the roughest trial of my entire life. But how did Jesus spend his last night? He spent it serving his disciples a meal, washing their dirty feet, including the feet of the one in particular, Judas, who was going to betray him, the feet of the rest of the disciples who were going to abandon him. He spent that night patiently teaching them some final lessons and praying for them. Jesus wasn't angry. He wasn't terrified about what was going to happen to him. He knew that this is why he came. His hour had come. He came for that hour. And Jesus instituted this ordinance of communion in order to show his disciples that what he was about to suffer, what he was about to do, he was doing for them. For them. During that Last Supper, Jesus took that bread in his hands and he gave thanks to God for it, and then he broke it, showing how his body would soon be broken. And he said to his disciples, this is my body, which is for you. 
He was giving his body to be broken in order to pay for the sins of his disciples, to take our place on that cross. And then he took that cup, which signified his shed blood, which would inaugurate the new covenant, a covenant that God was making with his people in which he promises to forgive his people of all their sins, and he promises to give his people a new heart to know him. And Jesus was showing his disciples that he was going to the cross in order to purchase their enjoyment of these new covenant promises. And after he served the broken bread and after he served the cup, he repeated this phrase, do this in remembrance of me. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Jesus instituted this ordinance that we're going to celebrate later this morning. He instituted it for the purpose of remembering the sacrifice that he made for us in order to redeem us. Verse 26 of chapter 11, Paul explains, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the death of the Lord until he comes. That's what happens when we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. We proclaim his death. We proclaim the good news of the great sacrifice that our Lord accomplished in order to save us, his unworthy people. And every time we celebrate this supper, every single time we eat the bread and drink the cup, we are to do so in remembrance of Jesus Christ. And we are to keep doing it until when? Until he comes back. Because Jesus didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead. And he's coming back to set up his kingdom. So when we partake of this ordinance, we are reaffirming our faith in Jesus Christ. We are reaffirming our need, our desperate need of his sacrifice. We are, every time we come to the table, reaffirming this new covenant that God has entered into with us. We've all seen a couple renew their wedding vows. They were still married when they renewed those vows. It's not as though they got a a divorce for the purpose of renewing their vows. They were still married, and they wanted to what? Reaffirm their love and commitment to one another. And that is what we're doing when we come to this table. It's not that we've fallen out of covenant with God and we have to re-enter this relationship every month. Rather, we are recognizing and reaffirming the covenantal relationship that we have with God that Jesus Christ has caused us to enter into. When we partake of this meal, we are preaching the gospel to all five of our senses. And when we, by faith, believe in what is being declared to us, we enter into a greater enjoyment of the benefits of what our Lord has accomplished for us. Now, seeing as how that is what the Lord's Supper is, do you see the difference between what the celebration of the Lord's Supper really is and how the Corinthians were celebrating it? Jesus sacrificed his body And he spilled his blood in order to rescue his people. And here are the Corinthians who are unwilling to sacrifice a portion of their lunch 
to help fill the empty belly of their brother or sister in Christ. If they had truly been appreciating the meaning of the Lord's Supper, if they had truly been remembering their Lord and the sacrifice that he made for them, they would not have been treating one another in this way. And I think you're all wise enough to know how to apply this to yourself. If Jesus laid down his life for us, and he calls us to love one another in the same way as he has loved us, that means that we need to be willing to lay our lives down for one another. And if we're unwilling to do that, then we do not understand what our Lord has done for us. So that's the practice of the Lord's Supper. And that brings us thirdly to the prescription. We see this in verses 27 through 34. Paul now warns against perverting the tradition of the Lord's Supper as they had been doing. Paul is going to tell them what they need to do to remedy what has gone wrong, and he begins with a warning. Verse 27, he says, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. Now, read very carefully what Paul is saying here. Paul does not say that anyone who is unworthy and eats shall be guilty. We're all unworthy, are we not, to benefit from what Christ has done? That's not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying that anyone who eats unworthily shall be guilty. That is, anyone who partakes of this supper in such a way that dishonors the meaning of the supper that person is guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. If we eat without recognizing who it is that we are celebrating, if we eat without remembering the Lord Jesus Christ and without acknowledging our desperate need for him, then we are eating unworthily because we're not eating it in the way Jesus told us to eat it. We're not remembering him. And it was clear that the Corinthians were not taking care to remember Jesus Christ. And what made that very clear was in how they were treating one another. Because if I am unrepentantly and callously turning a blind eye to the needs of my brothers and sisters in Christ, and yet I partake of communion only to turn around and continue ignoring the needs of others, then I have eaten in an unworthy manner. And I am guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus. Now, to be guilty of the body and blood of Christ, it means either that I have sinned against the body and the blood of Christ, or it means that I am guilty of, held liable for the body and the blood of Christ. That is, I might as well have been in the crowd on that Good Friday shouting out, crucify him, along with all the others. Verse 28, Paul says, But a man must test himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Before you and I come to this table, we need to test ourselves. And it's best if we do that before we get into the building. 
Before we eat the bread and we drink the cup, we need to determine whether or not we are going to eat in a manner that is worthy or unworthy of Christ's sacrifice. Before I receive the elements of this supper, I should ask myself, whose attitude do I have? Am I more like the crowd who made sport of Jesus when he hung on that cross, who counted his death as a light thing, who considered Jesus just some stranger whose death means nothing to me? Am I like them, or am I more like Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus and Mary Magdalene, those for whom the body and the blood of Christ was precious? And once they came to a full realization of the significance of what Jesus had done, his body and blood became all the more precious. When I come to this table, does what it signify, is that precious to me? Or is this just something I do once a month on a Sunday? I should examine myself to see if there is any unrepentant sin in my life that I'm not turning away from, that I'm not asking God's forgiveness for, that I'm not seeking the Holy Spirit's help to put to death in my life. Jesus died to save us from sin. And if I partake of this table and then I go and leave to only actively pursue the sin for which Jesus died to set me free, I make a mockery of his sacrifice. We saw that in the book of Hebrews, chapter 10 and verse 26. There, the preacher who wrote that book, he said, For if we go on sinning willfully, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy by the mouth of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as defiled the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace. When I partake of the Lord's Supper, am I treasuring what that is proclaiming? Am I treasuring Jesus or am I trampling on him, treating him as not worth any more than the dust I walk over every day? Now, what if I don't examine myself? What if I come and partake of communion in an unworthy manner, a flippant, careless way, content to keep living in my selfishness and sin? So what? It's just grape juice. It's just bread. How can that hurt me? Well, look at verses 29 to 30. Paul says, For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. I fall under the judgment of God if I do not judge the body rightly. That is, if I partake of the Lord's Supper without recognizing, without judging rightly the body of Christ which he gave to save me. 
And when Paul says, if he does not judge the body rightly, he may also be referring to the church as the body of Christ. These Corinthians, they were overlooking their brothers and sisters in Christ. Back in chapter 10 and verse 17, Paul had written there, Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. If I mistreat the body of Christ, if I am willing to habitually sin against my brothers and sisters in Christ, then it is clear that I have no regard for who they are as the blood-bought people of Christ, and I have no regard for the one who purchased them, the Lord Jesus. And I will fall under God's judgment. According to verse 30, in Corinth, as a result of partaking of communion in an unworthy manner, some of them had become weak, some of them had become sick, and some of them had fallen asleep. That is a euphemism for the believer who has died. Some of them had died because of their perversion of the Lord's Supper. God takes how we treat the sacrifice of his son very seriously. How would you like it if you sent your child to die for someone and they treat it like it was nothing? It means nothing. How do we think God our Father feels about that? A lot of times people will say that the God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath, while the God of the New Testament is a God of mercy and grace. They say that as if God has changed, but God does not change. God is just as much a God of mercy and grace in the Old Testament as he is in the New. And God is just as much a God of wrath in the New Testament as he is in the Old. Do you remember how God struck dead Ananias and Sapphira in the early days of the church when they lied about how much money they had donated to the church. That doesn't sound like a big deal, but when you're dealing with God's church, that's a big deal. I want you to turn back to Acts chapter 5, starting in verse 11, which tells us the aftermath of that judgment of God upon Ananias and Sapphira. Acts chapter 5 and verse 11, this is right after God did that. It says there, And great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard these things. Now at the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were happening among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico. But none of the rest dared to associate with them. However, the people were holding them in high esteem. Now that's interesting. There's people not daring to associate with them, but then look at verse 14. And more than ever, believers in the Lord were added to their number, multitudes of men and women. So you see that those who took God seriously and who recognized their great need of Christ Despite what had happened to Ananias and Sapphira, they continued to stream into the church, whereas those who did not take God so seriously, did not recognize their need for Christ, they said, I don't want any part of that. That's too dangerous. I don't want to be involved in that. 
They stayed far away. And this dynamic is something that has been lost in the church today. We have lost the fear of the Lord. An understanding of our God's great holiness. We're too content to mix the world and the church together as if we're just one social club among many. We are apt to presume that we can have our cake and eat it too. That I can have Jesus save me from the consequences of my sin while I continue to live in the midst of my sin and pursue my own pleasure. But we have to remember God has not changed. 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 17 says this, For it is time for judgment to begin with the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Those are not empty words. God still makes believers weak, sick, and puts them to death for their unrepentant sin. That's not to say that all sickness is a direct result of personal sin, but God does still act in this way. I've experienced that kind of discipline myself. I was thinking back to my years in high school playing soccer. In my senior year, we had a new coach, and he, at the beginning of the season, he said he wanted me on the starting lineup of the team, and I'd never been a starter, and I, I was very happy about that. But as the season, or as, as we were leading up to the season, I was struggling and failing to understand the concepts and the strategies that my coach was wanting to implement. And because I was unreliable, he took me out of the starting lineup. And that, to a, a teenager in high school, that was devastating to me. And so I cried out to God, and I asked him for help. Help me to understand what it is I'm supposed to be doing. Help me to do better. And God graciously answered my prayers. I started to get it and to, to do better. And it got to the point to where in one or two games I began to start the second half. But I did not give God glory. I exalted myself. I thought this was my doing. And wouldn't you know it, my kneecap starts jumping out of its socket and I'm out for the rest of the season. God laid me low. God has not changed. God still does that. Verse 31, Paul says, but if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. That's pretty simple. If I want to avoid experiencing God's judgment for eating the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, then I must simply take care to examine myself and eat it in a manner that honors Christ. Not flippantly, not carelessly, not treating my sin as if I can continue living in it with no consequences. I must eat it in the way that Christ intended for me to eat it, sincerely remembering Him. And if I sincerely remember Him, that will impact how I treat others in the body of Christ. Verse 32 Paul says, but when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. 
That verse helps us to understand that the judgment that Paul has been talking about is not final judgment. The judgment of God that falls upon the sinning believer is a disciplinary, temporal judgment. And he brings it upon the believer in order to cause that believer to continue to persevere in the faith. He brings it in order to keep that believer from perishing along with the rest of the world. We need to thank God for his discipline. God disciplines us, even severely, because he's making sure that we arrive safely at home. Better I get sick in this world and turn back to the Lord. Better I die in this world than go all the way into unbelief and perish eternally. Praise God if he brings my physical death that my eternal life is preserved. Proverbs 13 verse 24 says, He who holds back his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. If God hated us, he would let us go our own way. But our God loves us, so he uses the rod to keep us safe in him. Then finally, verses 33 to 34, Paul says, So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so you will not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I will direct when I come. The Lord's Supper, properly observed, will heal division, and it will bring harmony to God's people because as we remember Christ's sacrifice for us, we will become more willing to sacrifice for one another. And Paul exhorts these believers. He says, wait for one another. That can be translated, receive one another, welcome one another. Stop treating these other classes of people as if they are not your family in Christ. We're not to look down our noses at one another. We are to share with one another and honor one another in Christ. This is the church of Christ. This is not high school. There are to be no cliques. There are to be no social clubs in the body of Christ. We are one family. There are no second-class citizens here. We are equally loved sons and daughters of the living God. So don't come to church in order to serve yourself. If you're coming to serve yourself, you might as well stay home. You have your own houses to serve yourself in. Because if you come, you risk doing great harm to the body of Christ, and you risk bringing God's judgment on yourself if you come here to serve and worship yourself. We gather together to worship God and to serve and sacrifice for one another. Let's pray.